We have started a sermon series on God the Spirit, in which we are studying what the Bible has to say about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to abandon that study, but I, I am going to interrupt it. Because I want to encourage you in light of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Circumstances that I would say give us gospel opportunity. And what I mean by that is opportunity for us to grow, for the gospel to continue its transforming work in our lives, as well as an opportunity to point people to Christ. How should we be thinking? How should we be looking to grow and how is it that we should be pointing people to Christ during a pandemic? And so I want to take a few weeks here just to what I'm calling a time for series. And that is, this is a time for. There's a lot of solidarity in the world right now as we come together as various countries in our various communities to combat a common enemy. And we come across inspiring words, don't we? Like, stay strong, or we're in this together. And this is a good thing. I think we need to, we need to rejoice in that. I believe this is a good thing according to God's attention originally in creation, in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. Here's the key. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Combating a pandemic is one way of subduing the earth. It is one way of exercising the dominion that God intended from the very beginning of creating man and woman. And as God's people, we are also reminded to, to trust God, to live without fear, to live without panic, God is in control. God not only saw this coming, but God ordained this to be in the, in the world at this time. This is true. We should not be living in panic or despair. But are we missing something? We need to consider, I think, a, a different starting point as God's people, but also as the human race. This is a time for humility. This is a time for humility. This is a time for us to humble ourselves before God, to seek God's mercy, and to seek God's help. Now, humility, of course, is something the Lord commands us to have toward each other in the body of Christ, such as in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and following. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, 
bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. As you find yourselves cooped up at home during these days, those ought to be words that we write on our walls to remind ourselves of how to treat one another in our families, isn't it? But when I say this is a time for humility, I'm really talking about humility before God, humility toward God, whether as an individual, as a group, as a nation, or as the human race. And I say that this is a time for humility, first of all, because humility moves God. Humility moves God. In James chapter 4, verse 6, James summarizes this truth when he says, But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And he's quoting the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, verse 34. But here James is saying this universal truth. He is telling us God opposes the proud. God gives grace to the humble. Psalm 147 verse 6 says something very similar. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Again, those who are humble find grace with the Lord. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. And here the Lord is saying, all that I've made out of all of my creation, that I've created, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. This becomes the thing that draws God's care, God's attention. Someone who is humble and contrite. The word contrite means sensitive to sin and right and wrong. Someone who's broken by sin, by rebellion. Someone who is contrite, loves holiness, loves God's righteousness. Someone who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That trembling at God's word is, a, is an expression of real humility. Jesus applies this to anyone who would follow him and even enter God's kingdom. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, his disciples are arguing over who would be the greatest in the kingdom. And they're hoping as, as his 12 disciples, it'll be one of them. And we see this this kind of jealousy and this kind of vying for position and, and uh, prestige among the disciples during Jesus' ministry at times. And Jesus always addresses it very directly. And he even says here that you can't even enter his kingdom unless you become humble. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself 
like this child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is saying that if you're going to, if you're going to even enter the kingdom, you have to become like a child. And there he's talking about humility, meekness, having a low position. Now let me give you a couple of examples of God's opposing the proud. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. I want to show you two examples of where God opposed the proud. And to do so, we look to two of the most powerful men in the world at the time of the Old Testament. The first is the Pharaoh of Egypt, and the second is the king of Babylon. On Exodus chapter 10, we find ourselves in the midst of the ten plagues. The ten plagues that the Lord sends upon Egypt because God has told Pharaoh, let my people go. Moses has come to Pharaoh. He has said, let my people go. And at this point in Exodus chapter 10, verse 3, Egypt has already experienced seven of the ten plagues. There are three left. So this is right at the beginning of the eighth plague. And so Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. Of course, Pharaoh doesn't. He hardens his heart. He continues to try to hold the people. And the, this next plague, the eighth plague, is the plague of locusts. God says, because you haven't humbled yourself before me, I will send tomorrow a plague of locusts upon the land. Pharaoh hardened his heart. He refused to humble himself before the Lord. There's even a more extensive story we find in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 4. Now, just to give you a little background, this is a story of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is the great king of Babylon. It is Nebuchadnezzar who has, who has invaded Israel and deported many of Israel's inhabitants, brought them back to Babylon in captivity, among them being Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And at one point in the narrative, in the story of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar walks out on his veranda. He overlooks the kingdom from this high point of his palace. And he kind of glories in what he's accomplished. And he says, essentially, look at what I've done. Look at this kingdom I've created. God responds by, by punishing Nebuchadnezzar, by humbling him. In fact, he drives Nebuchadnezzar mad. Nebuchadnezzar ends up in a field for seven years living out in the wild. His fingernails grow long. His hair grows long. He's living in insanity. But Nebuchadnezzar is delivered in the end. The Lord frees him from this insanity. And in Daniel chapter 4, beginning of verse 34, we find Nebuchadnezzar's response. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. 
and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Here's Nebuchadnezzar. He's learned his lesson, and he gives glory and he acknowledges that the kingdoms of mankind, power, prestige, glory, these things are all given and taken away by God. And after spending seven years living as a person insane, Nebuchadnezzar learns to give glory to God. This is humbling. Nebuchadnezzar has been humbled because God opposed him because of his pride. Now let me give you a couple of examples of how God gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. God gives grace to the humble. The first one I want to highlight is in 2 Chronicles chapter 33. Now this is one of those passages you probably read if you did a read the Bible through the year program. And by this point in 2 Chronicles, you were just trying to keep yourself going in the reading, partly because it repeats a lot of what's in the book of the Kings. But this is one of those obscure accounts that, that tells of one of the kings of the southern kingdom, Judah. And what's remarkable about this account is that this king, Manasseh, is one who actually lives a little differently than the other kings. He doesn't at first. At first, Manasseh is just like most of the kings in the southern kingdom. He rebels. He leads the people in idolatry. And because of it, the Lord takes him into captivity. The Lord uh, subjects him to not only captivity, but torture from the, his enemies, Babylon. But this account is found in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, beginning in verse 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. There's the warning. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. So here is Manasseh. He has been taken off into a captivity with hooks. That's painful. And being found in captivity and imprisoned, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Now here's how his humility expresses itself. Verse 13, he prayed to him. He prayed to him. So Manasseh turns to God in the midst of this horrific discipline, punishment, because of idolatry. There's something in Manasseh, I think, that, that he goes back. He thinks about what he knows about the law. He thinks about what the prophets have said and warned him. He knows the people of Israel belong to God. He knows that he as king is responsible, carries much of the responsibility for their idolatry. And now in pain, and now in suffering, and now in captivity, he 
he entreats God. He turns to him and he prays to him. Then verse 13 says this, And God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. So here's King Manasseh who turns to God in the midst of torture, imprisonment, captivity, and God is moved. He's moved, in fact, and restores Manasseh back to his rule back in Jerusalem. Let me give you another example from the book of Ezra. Let me set a little bit of background. Ezra is one leader of the people of Israel in captivity whom is designated to lead a portion of the people back to the land and repopulate Jerusalem. It is Ezra who is instrumental in rebuilding the temple. He and Nehemiah are contemporaries. They're there at the same time. Nehemiah building the wall, Ezra really focusing on the temple. But as they are poised, prepared to head back to Jerusalem, they realize that they have to travel across a fair amount of of land that's going to have a number of enemies who do not want them to return to the land. And so they pause at the river Ahava. And in Ezra chapter 8, beginning in verse 21, we find Ezra's account of what they do here. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. So here they are poised, and, and Ezra realizes we're going to face some enemies. We're vulnerable. But I don't want to call upon the king. The king has commissioned this. The king has said, you can go back to the land. This is okay. And, and Ezra could have appealed and said, would you send some soldiers to protect us to get us back to Jerusalem? But Ezra realizes he's bragged about God. He has talked about God's love for his people. We belong to God. God will be good to us. God will protect us. But he realizes as they're poised across this river that, he, that they need help. And I think that is a significant point to notice here. This humility that Ezra leads the people in is not a humility in response to sin or to judgment that has been promised, judgments on the way. They don't repent here. This isn't sackcloth and ashes. This is a need for protection. This is a need for God's help and mercy. And so they humble themselves before God and they pray to him. And again, we fasted and implored our God for this and he listened to our entreaty. Now, these are just a couple of examples of how God opposes the proud, how God gives grace to the humble. Humility, humility. God calls for humility. 
Secondly, this is a time for humility because humility sometimes requires God's intervention. Sometimes humility requires God's intervention. What I mean by that is that if we do not humble ourselves, God will bring us to humility. There are times that God brings hardship, pain, trials to humble us. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Now let me just remind you, the book of Deuteronomy is, uh, the word Deuteronomy means second law. This is a second chance for the people of Israel. They blew the first chance. They had, they had been freed, delivered out of Egypt, and when they were poised and ready to enter the land, they did not believe God, except for Joshua and Caleb. They did not believe God. And so God has them wander through the wilderness for 40 years. An entire generation dies off. The new generation is now poised to enter the land. The book of Deuteronomy is a second address of Moses to the people, to the people of Israel, before they are now to enter the land. He gives the law again. We find in the Ten Commandments again. He covers the, the priesthood and the laws and the regulations again. Over and over again in the book of Deuteronomy, we, we hear Moses reminding the people, don't forget, don't make the same mistake, don't sin against God again. Trust him, you're going to enter the land. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, we find one of these reminders. Verse 1. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord, the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now this last verse here, verse 3, is one that we, we know well. It's a verse that Jesus appeals to when he is... Uh, resisting Satan's temptation in the wilderness when Satan tempts him to create bread out of a rock. Here Moses is telling the people, you need to remember the 40 years that you just spent in the wilderness. God brought that about to humble you. And there were many things that God did to humble you. He was testing your heart. That is not just... Not just seeing if you would pass it, that's part of it, but also to develop in your heart, to, to bring about in you a submission to him, whether or not you would keep his commandments. And he humbled you and let you know hunger. Remember, the people were hungry, and God provided miraculously manna, which you did not know and your fathers did not know. And Moses' point is this was something new that the Lord did to provide for you. It was humbling. You couldn't provide for yourself. You couldn't find food. You couldn't find your own water. God had to drop food out of heaven. Food, you didn't even know what it was. You said, manna, what is this? 
And he did this that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And what Moses is saying is this, number one, true life is found in humbling yourselves, submitting yourselves to God and following his word. And also that it is his word that truly provides life, sustenance. Man does not just live by bread alone. Even if that's what you consume, that bread comes from someone. Life comes from someone. Humility sometimes requires God's intervention. And that's just one example. You and I could probably list out a number of times in our lives that we knew that God was bringing something difficult into our lives to humble us. I know I can. Humility requires sometimes the Lord's intervention. Could it be that a pandemic is something the Lord is bringing to get our attention? Not just our attention as a church, as God's people, but maybe the human race. Maybe the entire world is being brought through a certain trial to be reminded, to be humbled. Thirdly, humility equips us to respond to the coronavirus. And I'm making this last point very specific. Humility equips us, prepares us to respond to the coronavirus. It is the right response. But here's what I mean. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. Do we need wisdom right now? We're praying for wisdom, aren't we? We're praying for our leaders to have wisdom. Do we want wisdom? Wisdom doesn't come from celebrating our own resilience. Wisdom comes from humility. That's the first step. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locust to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people. Now, I just want to pause right there for a second. I want you to notice that in these disasters that the Lord mentions here, shutting up the heavens so that there is no rain, a drought, commanding the locusts to devour the land, and sending pestilence, these are all sovereign acts of God. God doesn't try to somehow explain these things as things that he's kind of allowed. These things happened and I've let them happen on their own. Now, these are things that the Lord has done. He shuts up the heavens. He commands locusts. He sends pestilence. That is the Old Testament word for disease and sickness. The coronavirus is a pestilence. When I do these things, back to the text, verse 14, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, just a word of warning. Be careful to not connect the wrong parallel here. America is not the parallel to the nation of Israel. 
America is not the chosen people. When he says, my people here, he's talking about the nation of Israel. If there's a parallel, the parallel is the church, not America. I also want to be very clear, be careful here. I am not saying that the coronavirus is a judgment on America, that this is a direct consequence to punish America for no longer being Christian, that this is something from God any more than any other hardship or natural disaster that happens here or in any other place. What I am saying by turning to this passage is that humility is the way to forgiveness and healing. That when confronted with tragedy, whether that's drought, locusts, pestilence, that God, is, God does these things to humble us, to get us to turn to him. Isn't this what the Apostle John is saying in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8, 9, and 10? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Here's the pride. I have no sin. That's pride. If we confess our sins, God, that's sin. I'm sinful. I need forgiveness. I need cleansing. That's humility. Humility equips us to respond to COVID-19 by saying, we need to look to our own spiritual state. Not just us as the people of God, but the entire human race. And what an opportunity for us to say, think. Think about what I said a couple of weeks ago as Jesus charged the people that he was traveling with. Luke chapter 13, where they, they're saying, what about the, the, uh, the Galileans who have been slaughtered by Pilate? And, and Jesus points to the Tower of Siloam and he says, those people died. Your real concern ought to be your own spiritual state because everyone's going to die. Everyone will have to give an account. I want to point to one last passage. And it speaks, I think, so directly to our circumstances in these days. And that's 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter chooses this same reference that James chooses here in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now listen to what Peter says. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Now let me ask you, as, you, as you're going about life, working at home, most of us, as you are having all of your kids at home, nobody's in school, as your kids can't go out and play with their friends because we're on a, a shelter-in-place order, let me ask you, have you thought, I need to humble myself 
under the mighty hand of God. That all of this is happening by design. That God is accomplishing his great purposes in your life and in the world. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now, Peter, throughout the book of 1 Peter, of course, is really looking at persecution. That we are exiles in this life. But he says in verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him. Casting all your anxieties. So Peter is expanding this to cover everything that would cause us anxiety, pain, distress in this life. And he says, casting, heaving with a mighty effort. Push these things all onto God because he cares for you. Not because, don't cast all these things on him. Don't approach these anxieties with resilience, with independence, a fierce spirit, solidarity as the human race. No, Peter says, first of all, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He loves you in the midst of this. He knows what each of us is going through. He understands, and it's by his design. Our first response ought to be humility. And I think it's something that we ought to bring to the attention of those around us to think about a humble response to God. And I want to take a practical step, and I want to challenge you to take a practical step this week. With us at Crossway Fellowship, as a church, and that is to fast. I'd like to discuss this with the elders, and I want to challenge you to fast with us this coming Tuesday, day after tomorrow, March 31st, the last day of March, from 8 a.m. until 8 p.m. So that's a 12-hour fast. And do this to implore God during this time, to seek his mercy, to seek his help. Now, some of you should not participate in this fast. If you are sick, if you have health problems, you should probably not fast. If you're a healthcare worker and you're working and you need to have energy, you should not fast. In fact, we would be fasting on your behalf. There could be other reasons that it would not be wise or right for you to fast. But if you can and will, Join us in this fast and intercede for those who are sick and dying. Intercede for healthcare workers, first responders. Intercede and fast for government leaders that they would have wisdom. And not just wisdom and good judgment, but that the Lord would even use the weight of this trial to turn their hearts to Him, to rethink their morality their responsibility, their own personal relationship to God, and fast for spiritual awakening, that the Lord would continue to open up hearts in the midst of these distressing and difficult times. Yes, we will get through it, and I believe the Lord in his mercy and in time will allow all of this to pass, will bring this to pass. But let's use the opportunity to humble ourselves, and to call for humility. May God keep you well this week. 
guard you from the coronavirus. May he guard you from fear. May he guard you from pride as we humble ourselves before him and pray that others will do the same.